This is Guns and Butter. now is that this is a new and wider war. This is a qualitative leap. Again, the process that has now been sort of benchmarked by Obama's West Point speech has been going on for the best part of two and a half years, and a lot of it is associated with Obama. In other words, the apostle of escalation is Obama. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama declares war on Pakistan. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, a Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, the Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, the Unauthorized Biography. Today we discuss Obama's escalation of the wars in Central Asia, specifically Pakistan and Uzbekistan, what the war policy is and why, Blackwater and Black Ops, India and Kashmir. Webster Tarpley, welcome. Thank you very much. What, uh, Webster, what was your reaction to Obama's speech before the West Point cadets? That was a little, uh, that was a little frightening, wasn't it? This was a, uh, a tissue of demagogy and deception that will uh, go, I think, into the historical annals. And uh, it's extremely ominous. If uh, you wanted to put a headline on it, which is what I'm trying to do right now, so I would say the proper headline would be, Obama declares war on Pakistan. That is the heart of the matter. Obama declares war on Pakistan. This is a brand new war. It is a wider war. It is a massive escalation. This is not the same as the Bush-Cheney-Afghan war. This is the culmination of a, of a qualitative uh, expansion of this war in geopolitical and military terms that actually started when Obama came forward at uh, Soldier Field Chicago in July of 2007 in one of those Democratic uh, candidates' debates and demanded the right to kill Pakistani civilians on their own territory unilaterally without regard to the Pakistani government. That was such a radical proposal at the time that even Hillary Clinton said that was too much. McCain said it was too much, and even George W. Bush said that it was too much. But as the uh, Brzezinski, uh, Nye, and uh, Samuel Huntington and uh, this group took over U.S. foreign policy, certainly by the end of 2007, beginning of 2008, they were in command. This policy of wantonly killing Pakistani civilians in acts of war with predator drones, uh, that had become U.S. policy, despite the fact that Bush had said that he, he didn't want to do it. You're also, uh, in addition to being at war with Pakistan, you're also going to be at war de facto with Uzbekistan, and I'll get, get into that in, in just a minute. But let me perhaps frame this. The bookends that I would like to, to uh, offer uh, is the need to mobilize against this. The anti-war movement has been uh, moribund. And the question is, uh, is it dead? And if it's not dead, uh, this is the time to come forward. And fortunately, a group of people uh, led by Laurie Dobson, 
a former U.S. Senate candidate in Maine, have set up an emergency anti-escalation rally. And this is on Saturday, December 12th, 2009, 12-12, easy to remember. It's at the White House. It's uh, in Lafayette Park, right across from the White House, from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. And um, just looking at the website now, I'm surprised to find they have no fewer than three presidential candidates coming. Representative Dennis Kucinich, the traditional representative of the Democratic Party and anti-war left. Representative Cynthia McKinney, uh, Green Party candidate for president, uh, someone also known in the in 9-11 truth circles. And Senator Mike Gravel, also a Democratic Party candidate. So three uh, presidential candidates, Kucinich, McKinney, and Gravel, plus uh, Chris Hedges, the writer, David Swanson of um, After Downing Street, Brian Becker of the Answer Coalition, Deborah Sweet of The World Can't Wait, uh, and a series of others. A couple of state legislators have signed on. Captain Ron Fisher, uh, Navy captain uh, representing veterans, and so forth. A support statement from Rabbi Michael Lerner is announced. Uh, Kevin Zeese, he was the Senate candidate here in Maryland for the Green Party, and others. Granny D is also supporting it with a with a statement. So this is a chance to turn out and regroup the anti-war movement again, which has practically. Uh, disappeared from the scene in the past two years to, to tribute to the tremendous counterinsurgency capabilities of Obama, that all of the uh, the popular protest movement essentially have been have been swept away. And the big question is that they've, they've got to come back now, and I certainly hope that they will. Let me say, if Obama had been honest, he would have gone before the Congress and asked for a declaration of war against Pakistan, because that is what this is. Uh, the essence of the policy is the destruction of Pakistan as a centralized state, as a modern state. It's the creation of three or four failed states, mini-states, micro-states, rump states, whatever you call it. Total chaos in Pakistan, uh, no government in Islamabad, and a civil war leading to the breakup of uh, of Pakistan, the total balkanization and subdivision of Pakistan, according to the ethnic groups, which we'll have to get into, that is the Pashtuns, the Baluchis, the Punjabis, and the Sindhs. Those would be the four big ones in Pakistan, but also reaching into Afghanistan and reaching even into Iran. Uh, the goal of all this in short form is to to abort the possibility that that uh, Pakistan would become an energy corridor, specifically through the creation of pipelines for oil and natural gas, perhaps starting in Iraq and going across Iran, and then proceeding up through Pakistan, the whole length of the country, crossing into China, above the Himalayas, uh, above uh, Kashmir, and uh, essentially solving the biggest single economic problem that China has, which is how to get oil in a reliable way. This would be an overland route, not subjected to Anglo-American naval supremacy, not subjected to hooked up uh, pirate fleets uh, off Somalia or in the Straits of Malacca. It would save the Chinese about a 12,000-mile uh, tanker trip. Uh, there are other things that can be added to this, but the idea is that uh, this would be oil and natural gas flowing from Iraq and Iran and, and even uh, other countries through the port of Gwadar in uh, southwest uh, Pakistan into China 
and, of course, Chinese economic influence and economic cooperation flowing back in to the Middle East. The stakes here are the Middle East. If the Chinese become the main uh, purchaser of Iranian and Iraqi oil and, and natural gas, then that's going to lead to a future of peaceful economic development for all of these countries. You could imagine a, uh, an oil pipeline beginning in Iraq or perhaps in Iran and crossing into Pakistan and then into India. That would give Pakistan, Iran, and India a strong common uh, economic uh, interest, and that would put an end to the agitation of the Hindu extremists of the BJP party in India, of the RSS, uh, Hindu fascist organization, uh, and it would essentially wipe out this great game that the U.S. and the British have, have been playing. Uh, and again, it would mean that the Anglo-Americans would be severely diminished in their control of the Middle East and the Persian Gulf, which has been one of the keys to London and uh, Wall Street domination of the world over the past several decades. So the stakes are huge. The stakes here are far beyond anything that the neocons uh, during Bush-Cheney really ever dreamed of. It's, it's not simply who controls Iraq and, and Iran. It's now the, the area of the really great powers, the really big players in the world with huge strategic potential, the Pakistanis, the Indians, the Chinese, and ultimately uh, the Russians. We can go through maybe some of that in, in a bit more detail. The, the general idea that Obama puts forward in his demagogic speech in, uh, in West Point is to uh, blur and indeed to abolish the idea that Afghanistan and Pakistan are two separate countries. He was constantly talking about both sides of the border, the cancer that has metastasized out of Afghanistan and into Pakistan. Well, that metastasis has been the main goal of U.S. policy. In other words, to take the Afghanistan civil war, which according to many and correctly, has been going on for 30 years among the ethnic groups uh, with other things thrown in, to massively export the Afghanistan civil war into Pakistan uh, and create a civil war there. And that has been going on now for essentially two and a half years, right, since uh, Obama made that, that intervention in uh, Soldier Field, Chicago, two and a half years ago. Well, Webster, you have been talking about this for several years, it seems to me, that you have been saying that the United States was busy destabilizing Pakistan. Right. And Pakistan, uh, if you look at the recent Reuters wire, you'll see that they want to tell you, the British now, of course, Reuters, are telling you that, that Pakistan is a country of 160 million conspiracy theorists because they're all convinced that the U.S. is the greatest threat to their country, worse than India, worse than, worse than anything. And, and they're exactly right. Um, and the Taliban on the Pakistani side have accused Blackwater, or XE services, as it's now known, of carrying out uh, terrorist slaughters in Pakistan. In particular, at the end of October, there was a, an explosion in the women and children's market in the city of Peshawar, right, right across the Khyber Pass from Kabul and, uh, and, and the rest of uh, Afghanistan, you had a bomb going off. It killed 110 women and children and uh, named and, and wounded a couple of hundred more. According to the Taliban spokesman reported by the Xinhua Chinese news agency, New China, that was Blackwater. That was XE Services working as a subcontractor of the CIA. And I was interviewed about this on uh, Russia Today. 
some weeks ago, and I think the claim is absolutely plausible. Indeed, the evidence is building up, and I'll get into some of that, some of that evidence to give an idea of Obama's order of battle, because this is a, a horrendous uh, situation. But the idea that, that uh, the goal of this is to attack uh, Pakistan. Let me get to one of the main questions that people may have. Uh, under Bush-Cheney, it was a question of essentially invading Iraq, right? declaring war on Iraq, declaring war on Afghanistan and invading them, and then the push to do the same thing with, with Iran. Well, in the case of Pakistan, you might ask, why doesn't the U.S. simply attack Pakistan if that's the goal? That's what they really want to do. They want to destroy Pakistan. Why not invade them? Two answers. Pakistan is much too big. It's 160 million people. Uh, it is, of course, on the other side of the world, a logistical nightmare. The U.S. is simply too weak to even contemplate an invasion of Pakistan, an occupation of Pakistan. This is totally impossible. And even more eloquent, Pakistan is a nuclear power. They can defend themselves. Uh, Ali Bhutto, the former prime minister who was hounded to death by Kissinger, uh, in a sense did something for his country. It is simply not possible to attack Pakistan. Nuclear deterrence is preventing the United States under Obama from doing what the ruling cabal uh, in the State Department and the Pentagon would now like to do, and, and indeed in the National Security Council. They can't attack Pakistan, right? If you've ever seen these studies, uh, think of a Normandy invasion, and an atomic bomb in the middle, well, there's no more Normandy invasion. So if a U.S. fleet emerges, uh, say, off the coast of, uh, of Karachi, right near the mouths of the Indus River, and they want to invade Pakistan, well, Pakistan has nuclear weapons, and that simply makes that undertaking completely impossible. So it has to be an oblique war. It has to be fourth-generation warfare that on a formal level there's an alliance, even though the alliance is now full of uh, violent tensions and, and accusations and, and mistrust, and Pakistani public opinion has been completely lost for the, uh, for the U.S. and the British. There's this pretending, and Obama kept that up in his speech, right, that the U.S. and Pakistan are great allies and will always be so, and this goes on into the future. What the U.S. is trying to do is engineer an attack on Pakistan beneath the threshold of conventional war and beneath the nuclear threshold. It is a fourth-generation guerrilla war, surrogate war, uh, oblique war, I think, is a good way to talk about it, because even uh, Chris Matthews, in his uh, uh, usually uh, blathering commentary, he doesn't have anything crawling up his leg anymore, but what he's got is he commented on Obama's West Point speech. It's a Rube Goldberg invention, because on the surface it says, attack uh, Afghanistan, occupy areas of Afghanistan, and use that to deal with the real problem, which is Pakistan, where they all say bin Laden is really located, and which is the center of al-Qaeda and all the rest of this. Well, the goal is, again, to, to get that civil war out of uh, Afghanistan and into Pakistan. Yes, he said in that speech that, quote, we need a strategy that works on both sides of the border. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama declares war on Pakistan. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. In order to understand how this works, 
you've got to look at the ethnic groups. In other words, the, the, the nations traced on the map, right, the lines generally drawn up by the British imperialists in the 19th century, are not especially meaningful when, when it comes to, to seeing how this is, this is being done. On the one level, you can say the constant uh, escalation of these drone attacks uh, by the U.S. in Pakistan, killing peaceful wedding parties, attacking peaceful villages, is simply designed to humiliate the central government in, in Islamabad, right? It's, it's a violation of sovereignty. It's an act of war uh, against, uh, against an ally, so-called. And that's all true. And, of course, the Blackwater shenanigans that the, that the Taliban uh, spokesman talks about, I think, uh, fit in the same thing. But it's also reflected through the, the, uh, the crazy quilt of these nationalities in particular. Remember that the big ethnic group on both sides of the Afghan-Pakistan border are the Pashtuns. Pashtuns, Pashtuns, speaking the language of Pashti, their own, their own language. It's the largest uh, population in, in Afghanistan. And indeed, uh, Karzai, the current president, uh, is a representative of this uh, Pashtun ethnic group. But there are lots of Pashtuns on the other side, right, in those federally administered tribal areas and, and Waziristan on the Pakistani side. Here's the idea. The Pashtuns are alienated from the government in Kabul, Afghanistan, and they are alienated from the government in uh, Islamabad, Pakistan. And the way that it works is this. On the Afghani side, the Afghani army is largely uh, officered by people from this Tajik ethnic group, people who, whose language is more like a form of Persian, Dari, Persian, or, or Eastern uh, Persian, as it's uh, sometimes called. So they're the officers, and the Pashtuns don't get to be officers. Now, it was indispensable to have a Pashtun puppet, in this case Karzai, who had worked for UNOCAL in the past, uh, have him as the figurehead uh, president of Afghanistan. But the, the alienation of many Pashtuns against that regime is tremendous. And if you see, the areas where Obama proposes to send the troops are Helmand province, the border areas between Afghanistan and Pakistan. What does it mean? It simply means that the brunt of occupation and killing and provocation and all these things designed to antagonize is going to fall onto the Pashtun people on the Afghani side, driving, them, uh, driving some of the fighters into Pakistan so that they can wage war against the Pakistani government there. But now on the other side, the uh, Pashtun feeling is that the Pakistani central government in Islamabad is dominated by the Punjabi ethnic group, the Pakistani military Punjabi to a significant uh, degree. There's also, um, therefore, the idea that the Pashtuns, from whom the Taliban are generally drawn, and the overlap is Pashtuns, Taliban, Taliban, Pashtuns, if this group of 30 to 40 million people ever asserted its national independence as a mini-state or micro-state, that would essentially break up Afghanistan, and it would break up uh, Pakistan. So it's, on the Afghan side, it's a rebellion against the Northern Alliance. Remember the Northern Alliance that was the main ally of the U.S. against the Taliban? Yes, of During course. that invasion? All right. So the Pashtuns are on the, on the losing end of that one, and they're full of resentment. And the same thing going on on the, on the Pakistani side. If you can rile up the Pashtuns and antagonize them into a frenzy, then you've got the civil war going in uh, Pakistan, and you've also broken up uh, Afghanistan. Now, there's another group 
which is uh, significant. That's the Baluchis, right? Baluchistan. Baluchistan is sort of astride the Iranian Pakistani border. It also reaches up into Afghanistan to some extent. This is another group where the CIA is funding secret armies, terrorist groups. Uh, they set off a bomb in Iran. I was uh, talking about this on Russia Today also quite recently where they killed some of the main officers of the Iranian Pasteran Revolutionary Guard. Uh, in, uh, again, it, from the Iranian point of view, it would be in southeast Iran or close to the, close to the Pakistani uh, border. Uh, we're now told that the escalation of the uh, drone attacks, this is the New York Times, I urge people to look at this, December 4th, 2009, CIA to expand use of drones in Pakistan. Scott Shane. Uh, and the idea here is that it's not going to be just in the current Pashtun area, the Waziristan area, but also in Baluchistan. They're talking with Pakistani officials about the possibility of striking in Baluchistan for the first time, a controversial move. Uh, this is because the, the U.S. intelligence line is that the Taliban leaders are actually in Baluchistan. This is the so-called Quetta Shura that Michael Ware of CNN likes to talk about. God, I wonder where he's getting that information. Maybe from British intelligence. Gosh, I don't know. Well, I just read about that in the paper, too. They say that they're going to start uh, drone attacks in Baluchistan. Are they also talking about uh, sending special forces in there? Well, they don't talk about it. That's all. It's all uh, classified, of course. And when, when Hillary Clinton was asked by these very angry Pakistani students, what about these drone attacks? What about these stories of terrorism and assassination? Uh, the CIA has snipers on the ground. They go around shooting people also through telescopic sites, as well as using Hellfire missiles from, from Predator drones. The answer of Hillary Clinton, I can't talk about what is classified. Same story with this uh, unfortunate uh, Miss Rice. Now I'm talking to new Miss Rice, the Susan Rice, U.N. ambassador of the current regime, questioned by Rachel Maddow uh, on, on MSNBC. Rachel Maddow, to her credit, asked, what about these, these assassinations you're accused of? I can't talk about it. It's all classified. Well, uh, we have to do something to make sure people know about this. Remember, whenever a predator drone kills people in Waziristan, that's on the Pakistani side, or the federally administered tribal areas, or now in Baluchistan, whenever CIA snipers go into action, or whenever uh, the alleged Blackwater bombs go off in those areas, right, the people there blame that on Islamabad. They say, you are allowing this to happen, and they do. Uh, they're under tremendous pressure. This would be Zardari, uh, who is uh, the president, and then Gilani. The idea, though, is that the central government is controlled by the Punjabis, and they're doing a bad turn for the uh, Pashtuns and the Baluchis. So you get the idea. It's to break this up along these these ethnic uh, lines. So, well, now the United States stopped supporting Musharraf as well, right? They wouldn't even give him a, a residency in the U.S. Yeah, Musharraf, uh, I think, uh, is not as bad as people think. In other words, this was somebody who, who saw himself as the new Ataturk. He wanted to be the new Ataturk, and he tried to be the new Ataturk, and he uh, was put in this impossible position. He was given an ultimatum by Bush Cheney, saying essentially we'll destroy your country if you don't turn yourself into a forward base for our operations in uh, in Afghanistan. Right? That was uh, one of the most brutal things 
that's been done. Uh, so essentially, Pakistan was rolled over in late 2001 on the way to the to the Afghan war. Uh, I don't know if we could get into the the politics of this stuff, but the the Benazir Bhutto uh, family those are Sindhis, so they're not Punjabis, and uh, I think Benazir Bhutto probably thought that she was going to be the beneficiary of a U.S.-backed color revolution in Pakistan, but then was uh, liquidated, I think, by her sponsors when it turned out that she was falling short, or perhaps for other reasons. Anyway, I, I can't really get into that right now. How does NATO fit into these war plans? The main thing is that with this new escalation, right, you're going to have 100,000 U.S. forces there, you're going to have tens of thousands of NATO forces, and we've got this Foch uh, Rasmussen promising 7,000 more NATO soldateska coming in, uh, even though he won't say from whom. He won't give any details, and I'm, I mistrust this, uh, this report. This will essentially duplicate the Soviet uh, posture in Afghanistan, but now with the, the difference that it's all concentrated in the south, the south-east uh, of, uh, of Afghanistan, with the idea that you can drive a lot of those Taliban fighters out of Afghanistan and into Pakistan and get them to wage war there, again, exporting the, the civil war. Now, a couple of things that are worth uh, mentioning. I think probably the, the most shocking is the uh this was the cover story of the nation magazine november 23rd edition the secret us war inside pakistan uh this is chilling i would urge people to read it you can get it on the internet it's by jeremy scahill right uh, let me say the first thing to say about this is this is a limited hangout and it's still chilling and shocking and uh and a nightmare to, to read, even though it's a limited hangout. It's a limited hangout because he does not address the charges made by the Taliban that Blackwater, alias XE Services, is in, in the business of blind terrorism. In other words, putting bombs into marketplaces frequented by women and children. That, that never gets into this article, although it's, quite, it's, a, it's a quite long article and quite exhaustive from other points of view. It's a limited hangout. Uh, we're not getting the full story. But what we do get is that we've got targeted assassinations. Uh, we've got uh, snatch-and-grab operations. In other words, we've got black sites. We've got renditions, kidnappings, uh, and so forth. We've got CIA predator strikes, CIA snipers, and all this. And it turns out, according to uh, Scahill, this is Blackwater. This is XE Services. And this, is, uh, this goes through in, in quite a significant amount of detail that Blackwater is the preferred vehicle to some degree of the CIA, but mainly of the Joint Special Operations Command. And they operate through one company known as Blackwater Select, owned by Eric Prince, right, the infamous uh, boss of uh, Blackwater. And then there's another one called Total Intelligence Solutions, uh, headquartered Total Intelligence Solutions from Boston here in uh, Arlington, 
Virginia, and this is run by, has been run by Kofer Black. You may remember him as a State Department anti-terror honcho uh, during the uh, the Bush-Cheney regime. Well, right. He was a, one of the anti-terrorism specialists, and he also right. used to work for Blackwater, didn't he? Well, that's him. He, he's, he's, the, he's been the head of Total Intelligence Services, owned by Blackwater, owned by Prince. Here's the thing, that uh, in many cases, Blackwater, now called XC Services, is so infamous that the governments uh, that are forced to accept them on their territory have to have some kind of arm's length or uh, plausible deniability. So the fact that it's uh, actually total intelligence solutions on the ground, TIS, uh, allows the government to say, we don't have Blackwater. We only have Total Intelligence Solutions, which is a apparently a wholly owned subsidiary. So Scahill goes through a lot of detail about this, that there's a uh, command center, which is quite elaborate. It's called Qatar Cubed, uh, located in Karachi. The Qatar Cubed is that the, the advanced um, command center, the command control communications for the invasion of Iraq was actually located in the Emirate of Qatar. But now we have Blackwater, Joint Special Operations Command, and total... Uh, intelligence solutions operating in Karachi, the uh, the southern port there in in Pakistan. So uh, they are there using the Pakistani territories to plan and carry out these uh, assassinations and um, kidnappings and so forth. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show: Obama declares war on Pakistan. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The other thing I want to add is it's not just Pakistan. There is this other country, Uzbekistan, just to put that in context. Take a look at the map of the countries around Afghanistan, and you will see that it is, to some degree, the hub of Central Asia. It probably has more neighbors than, uh, than most other countries. In other words, it has borders that it shares with quite a few countries, more, I think, than any other. And if you look again, you'll see that Afghanistan has a border with Pakistan, with Iran, with Turkmenistan, with Uzbekistan, with Tajikistan. And then if you add in Pakistan, you, you've got a border with, with India. So Uzbekistan, this is 25 million people. Uh, the, the dictator uh, is a post-Soviet uh, holdover named Karimov, and there's a significant sort of al-Qaeda, Islamist, uh, fundamentalist, terrorist operation going on there, obviously stoked up by the U.S., obviously uh, helped along by these same networks that produced al-Qaeda and indeed produced the the Taliban, which is originally a U.S. uh, creation. So uh, we're told that all kinds of assassinations are even being carried out in Uzbekistan, starting from this uh, center, that uh, Total Intelligence Solutions and the Joint Special Operations Command maintain in Karachi, Pakistan. So all of the horrors of Blackwater under Bush-Cheney are operative with a vengeance, and they're even more ambitious on this bigger scale. Because again, Pakistan is twice, two and a half times as big as Iran. It's, uh, It's many times the size of Iraq. And then throw in... Uzbekistan. Uzbekistan is about the size of Iraq in its own right. 
Uh, and this is going on uh, with total violation of the Geneva Convention. It even violates the U.S. Uh, state secret system. And we have people who are civilian employees of these Blackwater subsidiaries, according to Scahill, that are blithely uh, ordering assassinations based on a cosmic level, in other words, above top secret, above code word, uh, which they can get to even though uh, relatively high-ranking officials in the actual U.S. government uh, are not uh, able to have these secrets. So you've you got a situation of complete lawlessness, a juridical vacuum, if you like. We're also told that Roger Noriega, one of the main neocon uh, thugs from the Bush-Cheney years, is now uh, busily working along with Christina Rocca, another CIA veteran from the same uh, Bush-Cheney period. Uh, they're uh, avidly taking part in this stuff. So again, Scahill... Uh, makes uh, quite a case. But again, the main thing I would add is this is a limited hangout because he's talking about something which is still um, somewhat under control and not uh, this idea of you know putting a bomb in the women and children's market of Peshawar, Pakistan. So if you put together the Scahill argument uh, in the nation of November 23rd with the massive expansion of drones reported by the New York Times in Pakistan and in, indeed uh, in new areas of Pakistan, New York Times, December 4th, 2009. This is a truly monstrous situation, and the dangers of this go beyond anything done in Iraq. Again, if only for the fact that, that Pakistan is a, a nuclear power. Um, let me let me also point out, in terms of the demagogy deployed by Obama, we're back to Bush, and we are indeed uh, beyond it. Um, notice that uh, Obama has now revived the entire 9-11-centered uh, demagogy. He started this in his Phoenix, Arizona speech back in August when he spoke to the Veterans Convention. He says, the U.S. was attacked from Afghanistan on 9-11. Well, I'm sorry. Was any evidence of that ever presented? Go ask your FBI director, Robert Mueller, who in 2002-2003 testified that not one scrap of evidence linking anything in Afghanistan to 9-11 was ever found, even though the U.S. had been ransacking the country, looking for precisely this for, for many, many months between 01 and 02. Uh, that's Mueller, right? Not one line on a single computer that would link anything in Afghanistan to 9-11, right? This is the absurd story of bin Laden and the cave. We also have interesting things on the Internet. You can find officers of the Royal Marines uh, who say that they were brought in to look for al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan, and they couldn't find any back in 2001. Uh, the official U.S. intelligence line is now that there are fewer than 100 al-Qaeda members in Afghanistan. I would simply add, uh, al-Qaeda is the CIA Arab Legion created by the United States uh, under the Brzezinski-Carter National Security Council and then built up even more under the Robert Gates tenure as deputy director of the CIA. Right? These are the, the fathers of al-Qaeda are Brzezinski and, and Robert Gates. Uh, so this is a complete red herring. We're told by Obama that new attacks are being plotted in Afghanistan. Actually, in, in Phoenix, he said, uh, if we don't uh, get active in Afghanistan, al-Qaeda will strike again uh, against the United States. Now, um, this gets us into the, uh, the Bush 
a doctrine, right? Now, there are several Bush doctrines. Uh, one is spread democracy. One is no distinction between terrorists and those who harbor terrorists. But the really big one is preventive or preemptive war. Probably preventive is a stronger term. In other words, you're allowed to attack somebody not on the basis of what you can see or what is imminent, but only on the basis of a hypothesis, an inkling that someday, somehow, a threat to you might emerge from some place. And uh, Obama has essentially uh, embraced this. In the West Point speech, he says that the big danger is that the Pakistani nuclear forces will fall into the hands of the Taliban and or al-Qaeda. Uh, and this, of course, is a hypothetical future event. Uh, notice it seems to uh, duplicate Bush's famous demagogic performance. We're not going to wait for the smoking gun to arrive in the form of a mushroom cloud. Well, you know, Webster, when um, Obama said uh, in his speech, we did not ask for this fight on September 11th, 2001, and you know the drill, and of course, Clinton and Gates at all in their congressional testimony kept emphasizing the fact that we'd been attacked, we'd been attacked, we'd been attacked. The fact of the matter is, even if you don't subscribe, as we do, to 9-11 as an inside job, the attack on Afghanistan in uh, 2001, they're saying it's a response to an attack, but those war plans were drawn up far in advance of, course. of the events of September 11th. The whole plan was on Bush's desk. Yes, and indeed, uh, the, the thing had been drilled. Uh, that, that's one of the things I've been able to show. That, that every aspect of 9-11, and indeed of the immediate aftermath, was all the subject of drills. So the idea of uh, invading a landlocked country with no alliance system and no nearby bases, very poor infrastructure, in other words, Afghanistan, that this was actually being drilled in the summer, not just on Bush's desk, but that, that uh, military units were getting ready. And they said, well, we went seamlessly from the drill into the actual invasion. Yeah, that's right, because all of that stuff was part of a package which was planned. So, indeed, all of the uh, elaborations of the 9-11 Truth Movement come into play. The only thing is, you have to have taken 9-11 Truth to the level of what we called MIHOP. In other words, made it happen on purpose, that this was not an idea that Bush-Cheney allowed some pre-existing group to attack or anything like this, that this was all an orchestrated provocation coming from inside the U.S. intelligence community with the goal of getting uh, a pretext and getting a cover story to engage in this uh, endless aggression. But again, the thing to stress now is that this is a new and wider war. This is a qualitative leap. Again, the process that has now been sort of benchmarked by Obama's West Point speech has been going on for the best part of two and a half years, and a lot of it is associated with Obama. In other words, the apostle of escalation is Obama. And I'd like to single out one person in particular in this regard. This is the Stanley McChrystal. Uh, if you want to see a modern equivalent of Heinrich Himmler and the SS, it is this person, Stanley McChrystal, war criminal, uh, even when he was... Uh, proposed for his current post. He's Obama's hand-picked candidate. Obama was obviously told to name him. Uh, the New York Times noted that McChrystal was up to his neck in the torture policy in Iraq. He has been the head of the Special Operations Command. I would say um, 
if we ever get into the archives, we're going to find that McChrystal is the founder of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was just indispensable for propaganda purposes. You had to have something in Iraq calling itself Al-Qaeda, and that was provided by this guy, Zarqawi, who was brought out of the, uh, the Ansar enclave, protected by the U.S., not subjected to Saddam Hussein. And then he, he did this big public oath of allegiance to to bin laden just in time right so that bush and, and cheney would have this as a as a propaganda tool you know webster i've read horrifying stuff about mccrystal on the internet these torture chambers that he was running at the baghdad airport in iraq right so this is this is obama's man now the uh, Scahill article talking about the, the Blackwater uh, XE and uh, TIS uh, operations in, in Pakistan, gets, it gets back to, uh, to McChrystal at quite a number of points. In other words, the institutionalization of Blackwater and similar contractors is very much the policy with which uh, McChrystal has been, um, has been connected. So you have to remember that when you get into this area of utopian, irregular operations of gangs and counter-gangs, the sort of Frank Kitson uh, approach to warfare, low-intensity operations, uh, terrorist provocations, and so forth. That's, that's what special forces do. Uh, and you could see that uh, the, the previous U.S. general in, uh, in Afghanistan was more of a traditionalist uh, bullethead, maybe, who was not into these things. Uh, but the idea of being able to wage an oblique war, to use terror groups, in other words, to use Taliban and al-Qaeda fighters as a U.S. surrogate fighting against Pakistan and bringing down their central government by starting a civil war. That's, that's precisely up uh, the alley of, uh, of McChrystal. Well, that's right. It was McKernan that was fired. I'm speaking with economic historian and author Webster Tarpley. Today's show, Obama declares war on Pakistan. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, you know, the Taliban is a very confusing kind of a set of people. Why would the Taliban be interested in destabilizing the central government of Pakistan? Well, first of all, Taliban is a, it's usually a misnomer. In other words, this is a hopeless uh, propaganda term, which is applied to everybody. Yes, words, all yes. kinds of people, be they fanatics, be they brigands, be they dope pushers, be they you know whatever they are, they're all Taliban. In other words, if, if you're if you're not happy with the U.S. British NATO occupation of your country, you're then a Taliban. And as Matthew Ho has pointed out. Uh, what you're dealing with there is really a national resistance to foreign occupation, which has nothing to do with international terrorism whatsoever. And the occupation, as we saw in Iraq, the occupation is the thing that creates a resistance. It happens whenever you, you know, go into some country. If the people are not completely decadent and uh, and prostrate, then there'll be a uh, an armed resistance sooner or later. So the Taliban covers all of that. But the the important thing is to see that what they really mean by the Taliban are fighters that are rooted in this uh, Pashtun population. And the idea has been to use the limited forces they've had so far to try to drive them out of Afghanistan and into Pakistan with the goal of getting them over there, then begin to, to reward them and getting them to wage war against the Pakistani central uh, government. So it, it is a, it's a mystification, but you can see what they mean underneath is, is simply that. Well, let me ask you this. Well, we remember all this stuff years ago 
uh, when Musharraf was uh, the head of Pakistan, there was all the talk about the ISI having created the Taliban on behalf of the U.S. to go in and fight the Soviets in Afghanistan. And now they're using the same term Taliban for the people that they're driving back into Pakistan to attack the central government there. And also they're, they're attacking supposedly the military, the Pakistani military installations. And they just uh, supposedly attacked a mosque in um, Rawalpindi in which a, a lot of military were praying. Yeah, that one in particular, uh, I would like to know what Blackwater and XE services have to say about that one, because that is precisely the kind of thing uh, that the Taliban, uh, I think, under normal circumstances, would be unlikely to do. There's even, by the way, a statement by uh, one of the leaders, uh, maybe Mullah Omar or somebody like this, one of the leaders of the Taliban in Afghanistan has criticized forces in Pakistan, who call themselves Taliban, for doing this kind of thing, for attacking the women's market and attacking the mosque. So I think what it boils down to is that there are counter-gangs on the Pakistani side, in other words, U.S.-British-sponsored counter-gangs, perhaps working through these private military firms, who are carrying out terror attacks on the Pakistani side. The goal is the destabilization of the Pakistani state, its destruction, and the export of the civil war but that this is being carried out under the cover, oh, we're the Taliban. So, again, the Taliban includes a huge fifth column of agents provocateurs and terrorists. Well, exactly, and when it's reported in the U.S. papers, they say, well, it's the Taliban that are doing this. Of course. So, again, we're right back to Bush-Cheney, except, except on a far vaster scale. And notice, the difference between Obama, Brzezinski, uh, Gates, Gates owing his career to Brzezinski, uh, as well as you know the International Crisis Group people and Susan Rice uh, and so forth, is that they know that they can't attack Pakistan directly, right? If you showed a neocon the situation, the neocon would say, well, what are you waiting for? Attack Pakistan, bomb them and invade them. Well, the answer is you can't. You're too hated, you're too isolated, you're too broke, you're too weak, the logistics are a nightmare. You've got to play somebody else against Pakistan. So in crude terms, it's playing the Afghanistan civil war into Pakistan to create the civil war there and break it up without the U.S. having to directly attack Pakistan, which is what they would like to do. In other words, the ultimate logic of what they're looking for is to find a way to attack and destroy Pakistan. And again, all of this under the banner of hope and change. I would just point out that in this um, West Point speech, if you look at this on the surface, it is an absolutely incoherent, crazy quilt of competing lies, which just make no sense. Right? He says, well, I've been dithering for for three months, but now we've got to have rapid deployment at the quickest possible rate. He claims that he had no options to send more troops in 2009. What does that mean? It's ridiculous. You know, if you don't like those options, you demand different ones. Uh, he says, it's all going to be for one and a half years. Well, uh, he says, it's a vital interest, but I'm only going to do it for one and a half years. Now, part of that is uh, the pullout date, the beginning of the withdrawal, which he alleges, which I don't believe, but the beginning of the pullout date is more or less the Iowa straw poll. So, but again, I think that's even eyewash. I, I think there will be no uh, withdrawal. But again, the idea is, what could you do in one and a half years? You certainly can't reform Afghanistan in one and a half years. But what you can perhaps do is to get a civil war going in grand style in in um, 
in Pakistan. Let me also point out one thing. George Friedman, the head of Stratfor, right, this uh, private intelligence service, right, linked to the U.S. intelligence community, certainly, uh, was asked by Russia today, uh, what do you think the big uh, strategic uh, novelty, uh, the new development of the next decade or so will be? And Friedman said, I think it's going to be an alliance between the United States and Iran against Russia. That is indeed the policy. Um, it's clear now from all this, it's going to be hard to attack Iran directly. What they can do is, again, have those Baluchis with their rebellion on the Pakistani side and on the Iranian side, and again, reaching up again into Pakistan, uh, to uh, Afghanistan to some extent, that this will begin to create a, a crisis, right? Because the Iranian uh, state is also vulnerable, right? They have Kurdish minorities, they have Arab minorities, they have uh, Azeri minorities, Turkmen minorities. Uh, they're very vulnerable to this kind of stuff. Once the bacillus of secessionism and mini-states and micro-states and balkanization is abroad, then a lot of these countries are going to be susceptible to it. And that is exactly the idea. That is the old Bernard Lewis plan to chop up all the existing post-colonial states and make them into these squabbling little mini-states, none of whom would have any chance of standing up to ExxonMobil or Halliburton or Blackwater or DynCorp or, or any of these others. So this is uh, horrendous. And let me also point out, part of the, the uh, conflict that the U.S. Is, is meddling in and trying to uh, exacerbate is the one between... Pakistan and India. Well, the first thing that uh, differentiates that from something involving Iraq or even Iran is that these are nuclear states right now. They are armed with nuclear weapons. They have delivery systems. This could be a, a nuclear war. Um, just briefly, the, um, the Indians have a, uh, a border dispute with China because China occupies a part of what the Indians consider Kashmir, which they're determined to hold. But the Chinese have it. There was a short border war there in 1962. Of course, the big one is the Kashmir uh, conflict itself. Now, Kashmir is, is different zones. The line of control is simply the line of mutual exhaustion where they fought themselves to a standstill in, in 1947 and then more recently. But what you've got is India has 130 million Muslims inside India. India is one of the biggest Muslim countries in the world, just by virtue of having this very substantial Muslim minority. And a lot of them are in the Vale of Kashmir, right, the Valley of Kashmir, where the population is 95% Muslim, and they don't want to be under India. And the answer to that was the relevant UN resolutions all say that India should allow a plebiscite, a referendum, a vote, for the people in the Vale of Kashmir to decide where they want to end up. Do they want to be under Pakistan or not? Uh, and India has always blocked this. If you remember these characters like James Baker III, right, telling us that Saddam Hussein had scoffed at UN resolutions, uh, well, India is also a scofflaw in that uh, regard. Uh, India has constantly blocked the obvious solution, which would be significant parts of Kashmir could remain with uh, with India, but this Kashmir Valley, 
where the population is, again, 95% Muslim, surely ought to be restored to Pakistan. It should be demilitarized, of course. It should be free from terrorists and so forth. But the the ultimate uh, origin of, uh, you know, why the ISI has terrorist secret armies, right, is because they've, they've got to have some means of dealing with India, which is a, a significantly larger country. Uh, and the, the thing that always, it always gets back to, sort of the Alsace-Lorraine of this situation, is the Valley of Kashmir. Right? If, if Pakistan got back the part that they seem to, uh, to deserve, according to the, the prevalent uh, religious uh, and, and political loyalties, then that could, that could quiet down. And, of course, uh, we just had Manmohan Singh, come to the White House, right? The state dinner, which was attended by the gate crashers, which the the media uh, pointed to, is really a very ominous development because it points to the idea that under Singh, India has accepted the role of being a continental dagger, in other words, a land power working for the U.S. and the British against Pakistan, against China, who knows against uh, Russia, against uh, some others. Uh, sort of what, what the French and the Russians were in 1914. And history shows that when you are the continental land power being used by the U.S. and the British against your, your neighbors, you fare very poorly. You are chewed up. You are mauled in the process, right? You're as expendable as, as uh, you know, anybody that you're being used against. So this is what we have now under the U.S.-Indian nuclear agreement, right? India has not joined NATO, but there is this nuclear agreement, which means that through the increasing, increasing cooperation of the United States with India, we are locked in to these beefs, <laughs> pardon my uh, use of a metaphor, but the, the quarrels that the Indians have with China and the quarrels that the Indians have with Pakistan. So the, you see, the U.S. is trying to play both sides, friend to Pakistan, friend to India. But, of course, the U.S. is, in effect, building up India and tearing down Pakistan. So this is something that goes beyond what could come out of a place like Iraq, horrendous as that was. Because, again, you're on the big chessboard, right? This is Brzezinski's grand chessboard. This is the great game. You're dealing with countries of huge potential in the hundreds of millions population and with nuclear weapons. Uh, and this is dangerous beyond any comparison to what we saw under Bush-Cheney. And the way you've described uh, the U.S.'s operations in Uzbekistan, in Afghanistan, in Pakistan, that the United States, what, doesn't want a strong central government, wants the nation-state broken down? Yes, certainly. That's the essence of the Bernard Lewis plan, as, as updated, I suppose, by, uh, by Brzezinski. Let, let's, let's look at it. Right? The Pakistani energy corridor, means what? It means the normal, peaceful course of rational economic development to the mutual benefit of all concerned parties. Now, the United States sort of structurally is cut out of these things because the United States is almost exclusively a financial power. Right? You want derivatives, you want some credit default swaps, you want some collateralized debt obligations, Wall Street can, can sell you those. But if you need to do heavy engineering, right, you've got to have hundreds of millions of tons of steel and uh, the kind of thing that would go into a huge 
oil pipeline, gas pipeline, uh, with the maglev rail, the development corridor, electricity grids, water systems, uh, you know, river valley development projects, and so forth. The U.S. is at a disadvantage in all of this because of the decadence industrially of, of this country. Right? We have we have a financially centered. Uh, life, but the economic side has withered and atrophied to to an alarming degree. Right. So it's essentially it's the choice of the post-industrial society, right? The rubble field, the junk heap that we're living in, right? Essentially, after Carter Volcker, uh, that sort of puts the U.S. in a in a very weak position. So. Instead of being able to join in and indeed profit from uh, this kind of uh, infrastructural development, the U.S. is forced to sabotage it uh, using war, using geopolitics and, and so forth. Webster Tarpley, thank you very much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. I've been speaking with Webster Tarpley. Today's show has been Obama Declares War on Pakistan. Webster Tarpley is an economic historian, author, and lecturer. He is author of Against Oligarchy, Surviving the Cataclysm, A Study of the World Financial Crisis, 9-11 Synthetic Terror, Made in the USA, and co-author of George Bush, The Unauthorized Biography. His latest books are Obama, The Postmodern Coup, The Making of a Manchurian Candidate, and Obama, The Unauthorized Biography. His prescient economic work, Surviving the Cataclysm, is now out in paperback, available from ProgressivePress.com. Webster Tarpley hosts a weekly two-hour Internet public affairs radio show, World Crisis Radio, every Saturday from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Genesis Communication Network at GCNlive.com. Visit his website at www.tarpley.net. That's T-A-R-P-L-E-Y dot N-E-T. Email him at tarpley at tarpley.net. His latest essays are posted at actindependent.org. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Or call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Release. You dig me?